Hey, everybody. My name is Drew Baker. Welcome to The Brutal Podcast. On this show, I interview progressive winemakers, chefs, farmers, artists, scientists at my kitchen table. On today's episode, I interview Laura Brennan Bissell, founder and winemaker at In Canoe Wines in Berkeley, California. Through respectful farming and gentle cellar practices, Laura seeks to craft wines that express their place and her passion for perennial renaissance and beauty. All right, table set. Laura's in the house. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Drew. It's, uh, it's very wonderful to be talking to you, especially since we could not have the Solstice Festival this year, which it was like like winemaker Christmas. <laughs> it's like I was like looking forward to so desperately. But yeah. Oh yeah, last summer that was like a high spot, and like that's been a high spot of like the last like. If I look on like a three year average, like that was like a really good weekend, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. You guys, you guys nailed it. And it was going to be really like that in Charleston Wine and Food Festival are like I've never done that one. Oh my God, it's the best. Is it's it the good? Best in the world. It's I mean, I just love that city. Like it is a city that is basically like a temple to eating like delicious fish and oysters and fried things and drinking like as much grower champagne as your body can actually handle. And then once you can't handle any more grower champagne, you start drinking cocktails. Yeah. Like that doesn't suck. Magical place. Yeah. And the food, like the food is unbelievable. You can go sailing. You like, it's just, uh, it's magic. I love it there. That's awesome. So where, where are you checking in from tonight? Uh, I am on Underwood Mountain in Washington. So I have a second project up in Washington in the Columbia Gorge, and we've actually relocated up here. Um, so I have 20 acres of vineyard and then about another 20, 30-ish acres of land, um, like some that we're food farming on and we're introducing livestock as well. So um, cool. kind so of like going the homesteading project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, homesteading, but also, I mean, there's like, I'm, I'm imagining you can probably relate to this, but I feel like the longer I make wine, um, and the more, you know, involved I'm able to become with the farming, um, you know, I guess you've had a different experience because you've grown up with vineyards and that's amazing. But for me, it's like, I've had to kind of elbow my way in to the farming side of it. Um, and I just feel like I become like rather radicalized. Um, and to me, like if I'm participating in the farming of a piece of land, like it needs to be in a way where I feel like I'm leaving something better than what I came to. Um, you know, so I have a big dedication to sequestering carbon and to growing food, you know, not just for my family, but for our community. Um, just today we were working on building a food stand that's like at the bottom of our road. That's just basically for free food for people who need it. Um, in the long-term plan of that is to have it basically as a produce stand from our farm. Um, let me put, I have a dog chewing on a pine cone right beside me. Hold on. Hey, <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that um, introducing livestock so that they're, 
they're eating the grasses and I don't have to till, you know, they're leaving their manure behind. They're helping build the soil. Um, you know, and then by doing that, we also, we create food for my family, for my business partner's family, for our crew. Um, and it's just, you know, it's in the early phases up here, but you can already feel like that the land is responding to that. Um, you know, like that buzz that you get in springtime, you know, when you go outside and everything's really waking up. Like, I feel like that's muted when you're in cities or it's muted, you know, when you're somewhere where they're farming industrially. But then when it really, you know, when like even the dirt's alive and all the way up, there's, you know, there's just this kind of, I don't know, is this energy that just kind of takes you. And um, yeah, it's, it's nice to, to feel something transitioning into that. And, and honestly, like doing it pretty quickly because I, I think it's what the earth and land and plants and animals want to do anyway. Um, you know, and I think that this, oddly, this pandemic is echoing that on a really global level. You know, there's people in London hearing songbirds and, you know, or, or flowers, you know, are blooming more. I just went and picked my neighbor's raspberries and she has the biggest load of raspberries she's ever had, you know, and yeah. So it's kind of an interesting year to be experiencing the catharsis of, you know, moving forward with a piece of land. For sure. You're speaking my love language. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, just cultivating a healthy farm organism and realizing that like us, we, the, 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 the human element in a farm is but a piece, um, an important one, um, because I think we have the ability to bring, you know, love and passion and vision to a farm organism um but when you when you just grow grapes um it it's it's not you know i think initially it's fulfilling um but yeah. more that the more involved you get there's that moment where you like stop and look around and realize that like you're but a human tending these vines and there's so much happening around you and and all of it is important and that we have an opportunity really to like cultivate um you know a healthier a healthier farm organism through biodiversity through uh cover crop rotations through um you know pasturing animals um and as a byproduct of that you create, you know, a healthier ecosystem, you create food for yourselves and for those around you, you create more job opportunities. Like there's just so much fulfillment. And you sequester now. carbon. Yes. <laughs> like, sure. yeah. No, it's, I, I'm totally with you. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think it's for the, the faint of heart, you know, like it's, there's lots of frustration. There's lots of moving little widgets. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I think that I have also adapted somewhat of a radical view with wine at this point where I'm really questioning whether I want to make wine even from vineyards, even if they're being farmed organically. Like I'm like, well, well, organic was before I like drank the Kool-Aid, you know, so to say organic was, was good. 
It was great. But it's like now I think about, well, what organic things are they spraying and how much water are they using and are they tilling, you know, are they actively tilling every year? Like how much carbon is being off put, you know, like how much are they paying their crews? Are their crews integrated? Like, are they, you know, treating people well? And it's like this whole rabbit hole that I've started to go down of, you know, what's, what's less, what's more, how do I participate? You know, is wine for everyone or is wine a luxury good? Um, if it's a luxury good, how do I have my wine, you know, if it's going to be expensive wine, how do I then have it help, you know, help people who aren't even necessarily going to be drinking the wine, you know, like I, like, I feel like there's, you know, right now is a good opportunity to, to have that kind of corporate responsibility conversation with yourself. Um, and it's like, I'm starting to lean on the side of like, maybe there's too much wine, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe this, this luxury good that we're racing to the bottom, you know, to, to make a quality product for a lower price point. Um, maybe that's actually destructive for everyone, you know, maybe, maybe it's better for wine to be expensive, but then to figure out ways of subsidizing it, you know, so other people can experience it. And, you know, maybe instead of making sure everybody can experience your wine, maybe it's better if you have some land that you're growing food to make sure people eat and have more expensive wine, <laughs> you know, like, like, I think there's just all these kind of philosophical questions that have really, I don't know, like kind of poured upon me in in this you know adventure into growing my own grapes and you know really having full control of the land and um it's like making me it's like making me lean out you know um and instead of you know my my life's been pretty crazy and I started in Kanu like really with nothing. I mean, on Medi-Cal, like I was receiving food stamps in the beginning. Um, you know, before that I've had some really troubling experiences in my life, but to now be in a position where I can like take a step back for a second and kind of look, you know, look at the big picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's really like, like, I think that as, you know, we go through this most shitty fucking year ever, well, maybe not ever, I'm sure that the dinosaurs would disagree, um, a really shitty year, uh, it's like this gift of, you know, observation, you know, to, um, you know, that we all have had this opportunity to really step back if we've let ourselves um, and, and, and then the, you know, part of my like beef with social media is I feel like it's, it's destroyed that opportunity for people, um, you know, and it points myself included. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just like something, something has to change, um, in so many ways. And, um, you know, if this could be the impetus of change for me or change for you or, you know, change globally, that'd be great. <laughs> you know, something, something fucking good came out of this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think like the tension, uh, in, in, um, you know, in your mind, in your heart is almost palpable. 
Um, and I think it's cool that, you know, you recently made the commitment to, um, you know, to give up social media, not, not like, I mean, I know that like, not because that's a thing to do for everyone, but because to your point, I think, um, it does often like squish bandwidth for reflection, right? Like it kind of consumes you in those like off minutes, those off moments where you could, where you could stop and, and look around and, you know, and see and smell what's around you, um, observe nature, um, you know, and, and also like build into human relationships, like really interpersonally. Um, and instead we, you know, uh, myself included, busy ourselves with like this whole sort of virtual conversation, which all too often is, isn't constructive. And so like, I'm, I'm with, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. I mean, it's been really, so, you know, with my dad dying, like that was a big thing. Um, you know, of evaluation, um, I got into a bit of an internet squabble, like not my impetus at all. And that was not really a big thing, but it was frustrating because it kind of made me see, you know, how actually not communicative social media is like that there's actually not communication. There's just narrative and whatever the original narrative is, it doesn't, like it's like everything else is just comments after that, I suppose, like a, to put it into like an analytical sense. Um, and that wasn't like really the decision maker at all. It was just kind of like a disappointment. And then um, you know, the real thing, like the, the combination of losing my father who died very, you know, like pretty abruptly, pretty horribly and way too young. Um, he died of mesothelioma. Um, so not COVID, but, um, but still, you know, died very similarly to the way a lot of people have been dying recently and it's not a fun way to go. Um, that with looking at how much time I spent just on my screen, you know, like, like you get those reports and it's like, you spend four and a half hours a day looking at your phone. And it's like most of my work I do on my phone too, which I've also found is just not productive. So I, I haven't even, I got a new phone recently and I haven't even put my work email on it um, because I find that if I try to work on my phone, it's like I'll look at something and I'm like, I'll come back to it later. And I'm a horrible emailer as anybody who's ever had to email with me, you include knows. And I think that like trying to do it from my phone makes it worse. But it's like, I just, I was like four fucking hours spent looking at my phone, four hours. Like I could get so many things done in four hours. And like, I could like email people or call people or like spend time with my kids or like make a nicer dinner or God only knows anything. Like look at my fucking ceiling and think, you know, but looking at my phone and, and as soon as I deleted it, I have like not regretted it, like not, not once. I mean, the same thing happened. I deleted Facebook a few years ago and that was great. But like Instagram, you know, everybody's like, oh, you need it for your business. You know, what's happened since I deleted my Instagram, people call me and people email me. Like if somebody has a question about my wines, I get an email or like I got a random call from somebody in, in, in Sacramento, whose kid in Maine uses one of my wines for their catering company. And had I had an Instagram, she probably just would have gone to it and 
followed it or you know liked something maybe but instead she fucking called me and we had this like nice conversation for 10 minutes and and to me that's just like infinitely like that is 500 followers worth of communication with somebody that's a net win yeah yeah so it just kind of I don't know man it's like I, I don't buy it like I don't I don't buy into it anymore and I think that you know, especially after this weird social experiment of not seeing humans and not interacting with humans and not getting enough hugs. When we all come out of this, I hope we stop looking at our fucking phones and like enjoy the humanity that is only going to be around us for, I don't know, you know, 80 years if we're lucky, right? You know, 100 years if we're really, really lucky, not long. It's true. So, um, I was, I was thinking it would be cool um, if if we like rewound the clock a little bit and like I, I, I want to hear your story and I think those who are listening would like to hear your story too. Like how, how'd you get like, I mean, you're, you're Laura, you own and make wine uh, at In Canoe, but like how'd you get to where you are now? Like where, where are you from? Um, like I, I, th- I think you've got some East Coast roots, right? Like let's, uh- let's hear it. You want to hear the whole story, Drew? Hey, I want to hear as much as you want to tell me. I mean, I don't mind telling the whole story, but it's not, I mean, you know, I don't have a normal winemaker story. Um, So I grew up in the Northern Virginia area, um, like kind of a combination of Loudoun County, Fairfax County. Um, And then we lived in Alabama and Florida for a little bit when I was a kid. Um, My dad worked for the government, but like... uh, military adjacent so we could move a bit because of that my mom was a nurse um and we had kind of normal nice life a little bit for I don't know maybe the first eight nine years and then things just got real funky and really dysfunctional and really gross and you know basically like you know, I had a, I had, I had a, um, a very dysfunctional, very abusive, like not, not, not so good family in early life. Um, and around 13, I started running away a lot. Um, so most of 13 and 14 were spent either as a runaway or I like kind of learned to game the runaway system. Like I would come home once every 24 hours, like I was punching a clock you know, and eat some food and grab some clothes or something and head back out the door. Um, so I couldn't get picked up. Um, and yeah. And then 14, I was a runaway in Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale area. And I was with these two women who are teenagers as well. And they were both pregnant and we were at like a Denny's or something dine and dashing. Cause none of us had any money. And I was like, I think I'm pregnant. And they were like, there's no fucking way you're pregnant. You just think you're pregnant because you're with us. And I was like, no, I kind of, you know, like I kind of feel, I have a weird feeling. Um, and we went and stole a clear blue easy from a Walgreens or whatever CVS um, and I was pregnant. So, um, at 14, 
my plan then was to stick around Miami and, you know, get an illegal job at a strip club or something. Um, cause that's what had been offered to me. And at that age, it sounded like a great idea. Um, but I went out to Kansas city area where I had some friends living, um, and, you know, contemplated my options and, you know, thought about staying out there. Um, and something, something kind of brought me back to my family. And, you know, I told my mom what was going on and my mom's like, Oh, well, I had a dream you were dead. So this is much better news, you know? <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, I had for the, all the dysfunction, I had a very conservative and religious family. So, you know, fast forward eight months from that point, seven and a half, I had a baby. Um, and, you know, I was 15 when I had her, um, and it was bittersweet because I was happy I had a baby, you know, like a lot of young women will tell you, you know, it, it was nice to not be alone. But at the same time, I remember um, being, being in the hospital, like with my, with my baby and thinking like, this is the only piece we're ever going to have, you know, like now we have to go back to that hellhole and exist in it together. Um, and we did that for about two and a half years. And I lived in a Commonwealth state um, where I wasn't able to get any sort of assistance or resources because I was underage. Um, I tried to put my daughter up for adoption after I ran out of any other option because I didn't want to leave her with my family and I knew I had to leave. Then my parents talked me out of doing that and told me that as soon as I was ready, I could have her back. And I left. And I basically, I think it like the, the term nervous breakdown, I feel like has a very, um, a very broad, like a very broad use, but like I, I, I had a nervous breakdown, you know, like, like I, I didn't, you know, it was like everything, um, kind of shut down and I ended up getting into some really bad stuff. Um, at 17, I was trafficked into sex work in DC. Um, so I spent about two years pretty like strung out and, you know, drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs and existing in that world. And I mean, I lived in, you know, Northeast, Southeast, the borders of Northwest. You know, at one point I lived with a drug dealer and we had plexiglass on our windows and, you know, there were guns in the house and like all of the, the bad, bad stuff that you like would never put adjacent with winemaker. Um, and, uh, honestly, uh, right around 20, like right, maybe somewhere around my 20th birthday. Like I remember being really fucked up and, you know, I was couch surfing at this point and everything and just having this moment, like an actual like visualization of like my toes hanging over the edge of a cliff. And it's like, if I just sneezed or like went one centimeter further, that was it, you know, it was into the abyss and there was no turning back. Um, so I stopped and I moved back in with my parents, which was probably a bad decision, but 
the only real option I had at that point and kind of cobbled myself together for um, about a year and a half. And then a few of my friends basically like <laughs> if there would have been a Kickstarter back then they would have done a Kickstarter, but you know, they kind of pulled together just enough money, you know, to get me out of there and to, um, you know, I, I was doing Kung Fu at the time and one of the guys I did Kung Fu with had a used car dealership and he fixed up my car and, you know, my best friend handed me $400 in cash. And, you know, one of my other friends helped me get down to Atlanta. Um, and I had a friend who lived down there and, we refer to this as my feral period, <laughs> like when I was basically a wild animal. Um, and, you know, down there I, I met, um, I met some good people and, you know, I stayed with a friend of mine who I knew through music and, you know, tortured her for a few months before she couldn't take me anymore. And, and I got my own place for a while and I was maybe in Atlanta for 10 months before I moved out to the Bay area. Um, and kind of through all of that, like, I've always been interested in the way things smell. And I've always been curious about what wine was, but I had no knowledge of it whatsoever. You know, in high school, I, uh, I uh, worked in a nice hotel at the same time, you know, as my boyfriend. And we'd steal Jekyll Merlot and cake bread Chardonnay and drink it on my front porch and have no fucking clue what we were doing. But I liked it. Like, I liked the idea of it, I think. I liked that it was this thing that, like, the principle of it was to smell. Um, and uh, so, yeah, California was working at a few different bars. Um, one was a, a beer bar in Berkeley. And um, this guy came in one night, and I thought he was cute. So, like, he went and was drinking a beer in the back. And I got off, so I just went up and, you know, sat next to him and started talking and he was like, I'm a winemaker. And I was like, oh, a winemaker, <laughs> you know, people can just do that. <laughs> and um, we ended up becoming like really, really good friends. Um, he was a kosher Orthodox winemaker, which made it even more interesting. Um, and, uh, like to this day, we're still really good friends. This was 12, 13 years ago. Um, Who was it? Jonathan Haydu. He has, he's the winemaker for Covenant. And then he has Haydu wines and Brodignagian. If you're into kosher wine, he's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's not like pasteurized wine. It's like, like the type of kosher wine that he makes is like real wine. It's just the only people who can touch it have to be orthodox you know they have to follow the shabbos yeah um, it's really i mean like ceremoniously beautiful um and yeah it was a very strange friendship but he was like the person who like between him and this guy named perry who worked at you know oh god what was the name of the wine shop a wine shop on on on, on piedmont street in, in oakland like, that's how I learned about wine. You know, I'd go in there. I was into, like, black metal and stuff at the time. I'd have patches all over me. I smell bad, you know, and everybody would treat me like shit. You know, people were acting like I was going to steal from them. And there was this guy, Perry, who was just like, hey, you know, and, you know, he'd, like, find me 16 bottles of $16 bottles of Lorac and, like, you know, cheaper, good Crow's Hermitage. Um, and, uh, 
yeah. And I'd come back in and tell him what I thought about the wines and I started getting into wine, like on a, like much more, you know, in depth level. Um, and, you know, Jonathan was into wine, you know, I learned about what Tanat was and, you know, these different grapes and where they grew. And, and it was just this very like unorthodox, no pun intended, um, way to learn about it. Um, not long after that, I got hit by a car riding to one of my other jobs in San Francisco on my bike. And the car that hit me was a San Francisco city patrol car, which was kind of fortuitous. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to get hit by a car. Um, and then what made it even more fortuitous is the person who walked up and told me, he was like, Hey, I saw you get hit. Here's my card. And it was like San Francisco deputy attorney, Eric Rappaport. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Jackpot. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I didn't try to jackpot it or anything. I, I, it ended up hurting me. It hurt my back and broke my bike. And I think I walked away with like 18,000 bucks and immediately 5,000 of that paid medical bills. And, you know, but with, with my spoils, um, I bought myself a, a ticket to go travel around Asia. Um, cause I had never traveled outside of the United States. Um, and one of my roommates suggested that was a good thing to do. <laughs> so I uh, went to Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Nepal, and India for about five months and just like did stuff that you do in those places. You know, I ate a bunch of food, I did a bunch of trekking, you know, I met a bunch of random people and and it was a great experience because I think that I was so tribal at that point of, you know, like people who were part of my same music community or people who were, you know, who had the same, you know, imagery as me, you know, they wore the same type of clothing or, you know, they were outsiders, like those were my people or something, you know, silly like that. And, and I think that on that trip, I had to connect with all sorts of people. Like I did the Annapurna circuit with a group of like, like it was a random group of like 13 strangers where we all just kind of met on our way through it. And, um, and I think I kind of learned that all of these, you know, divisions that I had created in my head, you know, just by like, Oh, that person has a college education. They'll never be friends with me or something like that. Um, were bullshit. And, like I could be friends with and, you know, participate in whatever I wanted as long as the other people were open. Um, and I wrote stories while I was gone. I've always liked writing, like writing has been um, largely part of my life. Um, and I sent these stories back an email and posted them on my MySpace, you know, about my adventures. Um, and through that, I got offered a job working in PR and marketing in the bicycle industry, which was great because I loved riding my bike. Um, and, and it was the origin of your newfound opportunity. So full circle. Yeah, 100%. Yes. <laughs> um, the really crazy full circle part of that is the wine bar I worked at in San Francisco years and years later. That attorney came in one day. And he gave me his credit card to pay. And I was like, you're Eric Rappaport. And he was like, yes. And I told him who I was. And he was like, oh, my God. And I took him out to, to lunch at a really nice place down the street a couple of weeks later. And we just had a wonderful time. That's wild. 
Yeah, no, um, it, uh, yeah, so, so I did that job for a while. I got really into bikes. I was really into bikes already. I'd been a bike messenger when what I was kind of bikes? Like, like I love all bikes. Cruiser. I like hand-built, snobby, fancy bikes. Um, I mean, I, 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 I've been a road bike person more than anything else, but I do enjoy mountain biking a bit. Um, but road biking and I had a, I had a track bike too. I really wanted to race on the velodrome, but I never got to it. Um, yeah. What about you? Are you a bike person? Um, I like to mountain bike. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, and I raced dirt bikes competitively growing up. Oh, cool. So like I was, I was into motocross. Uh, you have a great build for that. Most of my youth. Yeah. There was a time when I thought that I was going to like go pro and this was going to be my life. So that's a whole nother story <laughs> that hilarious. didn't quite pan out. But yeah. So uh, my first passion was motocross. Uh, before. Ah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a bike guy too. So I've that's mostly okay. retired that. And now I just like mountain bike, you know, once, once every couple of weeks anymore, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I do enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, I actually, I just gave my road bike away to a kid in my neighborhood. Um, and the reason I did that was because I've been convincing myself that I need a mountain bike here because mountain biking is like what you do here. And I think I'll just get out and do it more because it'll be more fun. Yeah. It's less and dangerous too. Like, on the road, just like people, <laughs> people texting and driving people on their phones when they're behind the wheel just like really terrifies me. Yeah, well, I mean... Yeah, there's that. It's just so fucking beautiful here, and there's so many good mountain trails. You should come hang out. Yeah, your family, mountain bike. Love to. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, am I am I being too long winded in in my tale of how oh, I yeah, became a mountain So um, <laughs> no, I love it. So like you you came back to the U.S. You're doing marketing PR. You were living the bike <laughs> thing. You had this sort of like underlying interest in wine that had been kind of like developing over the years it sounds like mm -hmm. at, at what point like was there was there a moment was there a person was was there like something that hey. happened that sort of like kind of like triggered an evolution from like oh this is like this like quirky little side hobby of like this interesting thing that I'm into that I do to like be fancy to like no this is like a viable way for me to spend my life um, so I got back to California. I did the bike thing for about a year and change and adjacent to doing the bike thing. So I like started a nonprofit while doing the bike thing that was called art bike. And it was like, uh, bringing the art community and the bicycle community together. And, and I like really pushed for that. And, you know, I was like, using, huh? I said it very appropriately named. Yes, yes. Yeah. I don't know where I came up with it. Um, uh, yeah, and um, that that actually did really well. And I like produced a couple events for um, for other like big biking events. Um, but then I had this moment of realizing that like to have a nonprofit like that, I would work my ass off and live in poverty for the rest of my life, as I was. Um, and so I like did that and I like toured with my friend's black metal band for a while while I was producing art bikes. I was like in the tour van full of stinky dudes, you know, like on calls and stuff. Um, and then I got back um, and it was like the end of summer that year, my friend and I used to do these, um, these dinner events 
And we did one that was like, I, I made like duck confit for like 70 people. And I just like, at one point was wasted and just like, fuck this. Like tomorrow morning, I'm going to book a flight um, to Europe and I'm going to ride my bike around Spain and France and find somebody to teach me how to be a winemaker, you know? And I booked a flight. Um, and I went and flew into Barcelona and I had gotten ripped off for an event I produced. So I got there with like $2,000 and I was supposed to be in Europe for four months with no place to stay. I didn't really know anybody. This was before Airbnb. So like, well, Airbnb, I wouldn't have gotten far anyway, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I mean, so I stayed at a hostel for two nights and then I like, you know, met a friend of a friend and stayed at his house for a little bit. Then I met a guy and stayed at his house for a little bit. Then I met another friend of a friend and I like rented a room. And then I, I ended up meeting these two British guys who are like super fucking funny and they're making fun of Americans. And I was sitting right next to them and I was like, I'm right here guys. Um, and I ended up living like renting a room and living with one of them for a couple months. And it was super fun. But not long after that, I met a, very brooding and intellectual handsome Catalan man and fell madly in love and we decided to get married after three days and you know it was pretty great I'll I'll keep it I'll keep it PG rated but it was a like very very cool story (laughs) but definitely you know lots of twists and turns um and uh yeah i ended up living there for almost two years um and it was in spain in barcelona where i became like really obsessed with food and wine my catalan fiance um was like super into food like him and his dad basically had like lists of restaurants that they'd compete to go to with each other on their phones and i got to participate in that and you know, I got more and more into wine and he was a good co-conspirator. Um, and then I also started teaching English to chefs, <laughs> which was like my own weird hustle where I was like, okay, I don't understand grammar or anything like that well enough to teach adults real English classes. I can teach kids English classes. It's okay money. Being with kids all day, just speaking English with them is kind of annoying so I was like, I'll just walk around La Bocaria, which is this amazing market, and talk to chefs about food all day. <laughs> and it worked. So, um, you know, I'd like meet people at Pinocho, which is this famous food stand. And, you know, we'd eat chuchos and drink coffee in the morning. Or if we were hungover, we'd get, you know, capipota or, you know, cigrones and mortilla and uh, walk around and talk about different types of fish and mushrooms and, you know, and, you know, pocha beans and they'd tell me the names in Catalan and it was my job to kind of figure out how to translate that into English so that they could do that in their restaurant um and it was awesome (laughs) um so yeah I mean basically you know huh I said what a cool adventure it was so all the while I was also participating in, there's a, there's like a poetry troupe in New York called the Poetry Brothel. And there was a branch in Spain that I participated in called Prostiblo Poetico. And uh, 
basically we ran poetry cabarets, you know, where we do like performance art or like I play music and stuff too. So I do that. But then, you know, we had these characters and we'd read poetry to people in like private booths and stuff. So, you know, that was my, my other life and way to make an extra 20 euros. But yeah. And then I, I, once Yvonne and I broke up, I had a boyfriend in Vienna for a while because I went to play an experimental music festival in Graz and I met him. So I spent my last few months like living with my best friend there, basically doing tons of cocaine and like throwing things off his balcony and late at night <laughs> drinking a lot of gin tonics. Um, and, and going to, to Vienna every, like every few weeks. And it was great. <laughs> like I, I was poor. I was fucking super crazy. Um, and you know, I think there's like, I forget who the quote is from. I think it may be Sigmund Freud or something, but there's like a quote that's like the, the, the years of your life where you suffered most like you'll look back on and, you know, remember greatly. And I think the years where I suffered most, I don't necessarily feel that about, but the years where I like suffered at like 75 to 80%, definitely the best. <laughs> right. Yeah. When you were hanging out in Europe, broke couch surfing and meeting rad people, that was. Yeah. Yeah. Drinking a lot of Australia at like three o'clock in the morning, walking between bars and eating like street samosas. Yes. It was amazing. That's awesome. So how does that, how, how, how did you, uh, how'd you navigate your way into becoming a winemaker? So I became friends with a woman who ran the wine shop down the street from where I lived. In Vienna? No, in, in Barcelona. Okay. And uh, unfortunately eventually and I broke up but we became really good buddies and um hey inside go go nope in the house come on sorry um so yeah I uh I became really good friends with this woman who ran um a wine shop down the street for me and she was this super 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 gifted sommelier who was really into like extremely esoteric crazy spanish wine and french wine you got some ice cream yeah oh you should go eat some and i'll be in in a little bit can you close the door please you can eat it after you eat your dinner please close the door yes if papa says it's okay i'll be in in a minute i love you sorry <laughs> you know how it goes. Yeah, I, I do. That was really. I'm like, I need to have a call. You can have ice cream and watch a movie today. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I met a woman named Nuria. Um, we became good friends, and she like I just like go fucking hang out with her and bug her, and she'd talk to me about wine, and and she was so smart and had such a good palate, and even though like. I think that she's far more into like the super supernatural wine camp than I am now. I'm so happy that like I experienced that before it became this like super crazy, stupid trend. Um, you know, because it was like, 
Escora Sanauja, you know, like older vintages and, um, you know, Solo Champagne and, you know, some of the like really old traditional Lada Johanan producers. And, you know, she, she just had this like excellent palette and, and I got to know kind of a, a really esoteric set of wine, like really before, you know, outside of, you know, knowing my way a little bit around the Southern Rhone, um, you know, I got to kind of explore real wine, like real eccentric wine early on. Like I remember we, so fast forward, I came in there one day and I was like, I'm going to learn how to make wine. I'm going to move back to California where I can legally work and I'm going to get an internship to make wine. And she's like, you're fucking crazy. You have no idea what you're talking about. Like, there's no way that's going to happen. You don't know what you're doing. And I was like, yes, I will watch. So like I sent emails to like all of these. And that was not the first time you'd ever told anyone that was it? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, it, no, I mean, I think that there's been, you know, I said the same thing about going and living in Spain. Like I had been saying that since I was like 18 years old and everybody was like, you're fucking crazy. You're never going to go live in Spain. And I was like, yes, I will. Um, you know, I, that's, that's happened. I've, I've had a, I've had a lot of naysayers. <laughs> um, but, uh, so fast forward a week or two, you know, like I had a friend help me with my resume. It was full of lies, but anybody who knew about wine at that point would have been able to read through the lies, but at least they were entertaining lies. Um, and I really think it was my cover letter that like got me anywhere, which was like, I'm a poet. And, you know, basically I <laughs> like, like if you were to read between the lines, it'd be like, I'm like a loser who <laughs> you know, is floating around Europe right now, but I really like wine. Um, and, uh, And I'm open and I want to learn about it. And I think I said something along the lines of like, you know, I'm interested in it because it's a combination of science and art. And there's the alchemy in the middle that can't be explained. Um, And that's what most people responded to, like not me lying about knowing anything about wine. Um, And I got a few like pretty choice job offers. Um, Like uh, Chateau Montalena, told me that had I known a little bit more, like if I worked one more harvest, I could come live there and work there. But Orrin Swift offered me a job, um, which was like the prisoner at the time. Like, yeah. even though that was not my interest in wine at all, it was still like pretty slick job to get offered out of the gates. A um, couple other people, but then the one that I settled on was Unti in Dry Creek Valley, which was cool because it was in a state winery. And I didn't understand why that was cool at all, but it was in a state winery that was farming organically and biodynamically. Um, so as soon as I got that job, Nuria was like, I want to go learn to make wine. And I was like, well, cool. I'll ask if there's another job. And she went over and and learned with me. And unfortunately that blew up our friendship because we were working together and sleeping on the floor in my ex-boyfriend's uncle's house, which is as complicated as it sounds, (laughs) you know, and, and everything kind of like went to shit, but I hope she's doing well. It looks like she is when I peek in, you know. But that's, that's how I ended up making wine. That was 2011. Um, in 2012, I reached out to my friend, you know, before he knew I was moving back, we had kept touch. But in 2012, my friend Jonathan Haydu, the Orthodox kosher winemaker, I had gone through a bad breakup. I was depressed. And he's like, well, I know you really want to make wine. You should make wine this year. And I was like, I don't have any money to buy grapes. And he's like, I'll buy you a half ton of grapes. And I was like, I don't have anywhere to make wine, Jonathan, shut up. And he's like, 
you can make it in my cellar. And I was like, I don't even have a barrel. Like I have no money. And he's like, I'll buy you a barrel. So he basically like, let me make all of my excuses. And then was like, you're fucking making a barrel of wine this year. And that's how I started in Kanu. That's wild. What year was that? 12. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So you started with, uh, you started with 60 cases of wine. What did you make? What was that first half ton? No, it was, it was 25 cases of wine, 26. Oh, 25 cases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was Cap Franc. Okay. Which is still one of my favorite grapes to work with. Where were the grapes from? Carneros. Okay. And like, how did, uh, I mean, is this just like, was he just working with this Cab Franc or like, did you get to go pick it? Was he, he just like- He knew I wanted Cab Franc and he found, he found a guy farming Cab Franc organically and he bought some and he gave me some. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it was, so it was one moment, of the sweetest, nicest things anybody's ever done for me. <laughs> yeah. So like now you say that's when Inkanu was born. Did you know that then? Like- had you already had visions for in canoe? Did you know that that's ultimately? Oh yeah, no, I was starting a winery. Yes, 100%. Like I knew I wanted to start a winery. This wasn't like, like I, I went into learning to make wine and it was like, I think a lot of people do winemaking internships and they're like, I don't know what's going to come of this, but like, I really want to learn how to do this and blah, 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 blah. And I like showed up like, and I was like, how do I make wine? Yeah, no, and, and people like literally laughed in my face. Like, like I, um, you know, and then when I, that year even, I was like, well, I want to get a little bit of fruit and try and make some wine. And people, it was like, people were like, you haven't earned making wine yet or something, you know, like there was like, there was this line I had to get in to make wine. And I was like, fuck you guys, <laughs> you know, like that's silly. Um, and, uh, you know, I have this really funny memory of, have you heard of Raft Wines, Jennifer yeah. Ronstadt? Yeah. She's lovely. Like one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life and her wine is delicious. Um, that harvest, we went, I went to a party at this lady's house and all the William Selium harvest crew was there. And we all went to the William Selium winery and skinny dipped and turned one of the tanks into a hot tub. And, you know, it was super fucking fun, but it was like all these dudes basically to me and Jennifer being like, so this is, this is wine. And like, this is how you make wine. And like, let us tell you everything about wine and just da, 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 da. Like, this to you. every, yeah, super intense. Um, fucking fast forward five years she and i both have businesses <laughs> you know we have wineries that are functionally making wine and i don't think any of them do <laughs> so you know it's just kind of like i think that there's a very unhealthy attitude in anything fraternal it's like you have to wait your turn or you have to like you have to, you know, take your lumps before you can move forward or something like that. And, and I think that because I had had already like a pretty unorthodox life and a pretty like cutthroat early existence on the earth where it was like, fuck, like if I don't, you know. If I don't take it, nobody's going to give it to me. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that that just instead of like twiddling my thumbs and I mean, and I, and it was brutal. I got fucked over. I had people snake vineyards for me because I didn't have any money. Like I had, you know, a really rough time, but it was like, it's like the cool hand Luke, you know, you just keep coming at him with nothing, you know, like you just keep fucking getting up and you know, you wipe your bruises off or your scrapes off and 
you keep going. And I don't think I've ever given up on anything in my life because I thought that I couldn't like, not to say, like to say I thought that I couldn't do it isn't correct. So, I mean, there's things that I'm definitely not good at like Sudoku or knitting, um, <laughs> but but it was like, I knew I wanted to do it and I wasn't going to give up because it was hard, you know? And I mean, there's plenty of, like, it was like, honestly, it was insane. Like I'm a high school dropout. I had no money, like nothing, no resources. I didn't have any family support. Um, and I was like, I'm going to start a winery. I mean, I'm like illiterate too. I mean, I, I love to write, but I like, I read so slowly and I'm super dyslexic like paperwork is just like I'd rather have my fingernails pulled out um but it was it was what I wanted to do <laughs> so I did it so you made those first 25 cases of wine what'd you do with it um I have like 10 of them, 10 cases left I just kind of held on to them because I thought it'd be fun I I have sold a little bit of it and I could have sold it through my distributor, what, but what I just... Do, what do I have to do to acquire one bottle of that? Mm. And I won't even necessarily drink it. I just want a bottle of that wine. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll send you more than a bottle. But here's the trick. You have to somehow figure out how to get me to go to a post office and send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I that's, will, uh, yeah, I'll arrange like a FedEx pickup. They're going to show up with... Like, that's maybe you know what that that will put pressure on me and they're gonna be like hey i'm here to pick up a box that you're supposed to have for me with wine in it going to maryland (laughs) yeah no i'll figure it out oh yes well we'll get you a bottle of it it's actually you know what it's it's not bad i mean i was more on the like zero zero super wooey side of wine at that point i mean i think that wine has Interestingly, that wine has less than 20 parts total in it. Um, it has a little more VA probably than my wines do now. Um, frequently, I'll make wines now that have less than 20 parts in them. Um, but because I feel like I've developed the skills enough to like really keep things in a nice, clean way. And, you know, I can, I can do that almost... Like if I needed to put more sulfur in it, like I don't give a shit about using sulfur. It doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I don't like drinking super sulfury wines. I think that prescriptively adding sulfur is dumb, but I don't have a fundamental issue with it. Um, But I did back then. So. Yeah. Let's talk about Um, that evolution. So like you kind of like came with this like Catalonian sort of or or I, I should say like a mindset or a perspective that you picked up in Catalonia which was, you know, sort of this like zero, zero brutal wine kind of category. And you, sure. brought, and you brought that into your first vintage in 2012. And it sounds like your, your perspective has evolved or your mind is opened or you've sort of set aside some dogmas along the way. Like, tell us about that like journey. Like now you from 2012, like now you are a winemaker. Like what, what have you learned over the last, you know, eight years making wine? Nine. Nine. Um, <laughs> math, math is hard. It's okay. No. Um, 
No, I, I, I actually, I only say that, I say that jokingly. I had somebody, I, I was interviewed on a radio program like a year ago and the guy's like, now that you have a couple vintages under your belt. <laughs> and I was like, fuck you. <laughs> um, I should have uh, known that too, because 11 was our first year making wine. And yeah. I've been like, we made it 10 years. So I should have known yeah. that 12 was nine years. Anyway. It's, it's okay. No, no, no. It's, I, I, Drew, I know, I know that you are surrounded by strong and amazing women and that there's they, no they, way. Yeah. You are, yeah. Not in uh, charge. Sorry? I said I am not in charge. That's yeah. true. <laughs> um yeah, I mean that thankfully to some degree that that elevation or evolution happened quickly. So the next year I did like like vineyard work slash kind of internship for Matthiason. Um how'd you get that and, Sorry? I said, how did you get that gig? I told Steve his wine was corked in a tasting, and it was. And I was like, by the way, I'm Laura. Can I work for you? <laughs> you know? um, I don't think that's how I got it. I think that, you know, he was surprised and he was, you know, happy that he knew that the wine was corked and stopped pouring it. But, um, but no, I, I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, have you met Steve? No, I have not. He is one of the nicest most sincere and like genuinely curious about the world people on the planet like that i've ever met you know like he's you can you can just tell that like by the way he looks at things or talks about things or thinks about things that like if there's even the slightest periphery interest like he's gonna he's gonna go all in you know, and want to learn everything about it. Um, and I think that to a certain degree, I, I have a similar, like I have a similar curiosity in the world, you know, like I'm, you know, like whether it's, you know, like the history of the Visigoth tribes or, you know, um, rum from the Caribe, you know, or, uh, types of grass growing in, you know, the Pacific Northwest. Like if I decide that I'm interested in something for weeks, <laughs> like I will obsess about that subject. And if you know me, it's what I'll talk to you about. And like, I think that that trait, like I find that other people who are like that, I tend to get along with them really well. Yeah, for sure. That might've been like, I, like I met, Steve um at a tasting and I asked him that and he said oh you should come out to the farm and you know meet Jill his wife who's also fucking incredible um I mean she's one of the most informed and knowledgeable farmers I've ever met and she's just tough and epic and Jill's Jill's incredible but um you know I remember going and seeing a vineyard with Steve and I had just found out about like what this like I knew that I love the smell petrichor and I was talking to him about it and we had this like 20 minute conversation about petrichor like as we were driving from his house to a vineyard and then pyrazines and how you know I was like trying to figure out if petrichor and pyrazines are somehow related in wines and maybe the one turned into the other and how you know like how they kind of correlate with each other how sometimes wines that have a lot of petrichor also have a lot of pyrazines and like and it was just this like super fucking nerdy conversation. And I don't know. I mean, I think that we just got along. He's an old punk rocker too. And I'm an old punk rocker. I mean, grew up in the DC punk scene. And 
um, you know, it's, he was also a bike messenger. I was a bike messenger. So I think there was just kind of a, a I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right You're word. Like kindred spirits. Yeah, like a kindred way of feeling and seeing the world. Um, and he's still somebody who I call to this day. I mean, you know, now it's maybe less winemaking or farming. And not that he doesn't know all, like, heaps of that shit and sometimes i do call him and bug him about that stuff but mainly just life stuff it's kind of like i don't know like he's just such a wise wonderful human like and i feel very fortunate that i get to call him sometimes and ask him to you know help (laughs) me figure something out having those people in your life is important yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's been a huge influence. And so I'm sorry, I'm on a tangent. Um, but working with Steve was such a wonderful way. And Jack, um, who was his assistant winemaker at the time, uh, Jack Roberts, who has keep, uh, with his wife, Johanna, um, they just were so kind to me. And Steve was Steve's not a dogmatic winemaker. Um, he's a good winemaker and he's a smart winemaker. And I think that he, he kind of just had a few like sit down talks with me in a sense of like, what kind of winemaker do you want to be? Do you want to be a winemaker who makes good wine that you like to drink? Or do you want to be a winemaker who makes wine to please other people because of its formulaic reasons? You know, like, would you go down with the ship? Like, are you dogmatic? Do you, would you like, would you drowned because your enemy came to pick you up? Kind of, you know, like, no, you like, I, and it just, it was, it was a good, like philosophical kind of like checks and balances of like what actually meant, like what wine actually meant to me. And wine to me is like the ultimate, like wine to me, I know what it means to me now. And wine means pleasure and pleasure in such a like visceral, but also understated way. Like to me, the best wine isn't the like screeching yellow jumpsuit. The best wine is like the perfect shade of cornflower blue on the walls or like the heirloom rose that's in the middle of your table that doesn't smell too much. Um, And to make wines like that, to make wines that aren't screaming at you, you know, I think it requires understanding and patience and and really a lack of dogma you know so that's yeah that's kind of how I got to where I am now which is I really care about farming (laughs) you know like that's really what I care about um what's your favorite thing to farm Do, do you have like a plant that you just like really love to grow I like to grow like Southern, like, like I like black eyed peas and collard greens and okra, which is hard to grow because it's not warm enough at night out here. Um, but I think that's cause like, it's like my comfort food from my childhood. My mom was from the South. Um, and I think that like, there's something, there's something that just feels like super soothing about that, you know? I love to grow herbs. Like I just love having 
the ability I mean, as someone who like obsesses over the aroma of yeah. things right yeah. like having your own herb garden is just like obligatory yeah there's like a little poem i forget who wrote it i wish i could say but it's just a little two-line poem um and it translates into french too but the poem is when speaking with herbs one must kneel and That's i just like love that like <laughs> it it um it kind of sums it all up for me so yeah um i like farming grapes <laughs> yeah i think that grapes are do you have a variety that you like to grow best i mean i can't say that because i don't feel like i have enough experience to really answer that question with you know with like a proper level of i don't know yeah i just i, I don't i don't i don't i don't know i mean i love bordeaux varietals because they're they cooperate yeah they're upright Cap, yeah, Cap they Cab Franc is is a great grape to grow. Yeah. I, oh, I love, sure. I love yeah, the way that it behaves. Mildew resistant, and you know it ripens kind of just the right time. Us. Yeah. Sorry. I said cold hardy, which is really important for us. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, where I am, I get three feet of snow here. Like we have to, and then I'm at fourteen hundred feet, and everything's dry farmed. So, it's mainly Alsatian varietals here. Um, so I have like Pinot Noir, um, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, um, Gewurz, Sauve Blanc, and I have some Viognier um, and uh, Syrah here. Um, I'm planning on planting uh, ferment, um, Riesling, um, Pinot Meunier, uh, probably some Eligote. I'm really excited about growing Eligote. I bet you could grow that there too. Um, and, I, you know, a few other things, maybe some trousseau. <laughs> um, but, and, and I really want to grow a little Nebbiolo up here because even though it's cold, like I think that like if I get the right type of Nebbiolo, the so soils are volcanic, volcanic here and we have a lot of UV. So I think I may be able to do something cool. Can yeah. I I would love and, I would love to make a Nebbiolo that I need to like age in barrique for five years. Like that yeah, is the just exact it, right. It's a grape that doesn't travel well historically. So like I feel like it 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 is like you know the holy grail. Like if if it's so hard to nail, but if you do, it it would be epic. Yeah, I mean it basically like then you just like your soul elevates. Yeah, it's <laughs> like drop. You get to be a cow next time <laughs> if you make a good Nebbiolo. <laughs> um yeah I don't know I mean I think that I like like I appreciate the kind of masochistic value of wine like I like the torture you know like I also love I love grapes that just like do what you tell them to do like Chardonnay is like sure whatever you want or Merlot is like please just be nice and I'll make something beautiful you know um but then Chenin Blanc is like I'm not going to talk to you at all yeah Yes, for the first time. Syrah is tricky too. Oh yeah, but but that's yes. Yeah. So Pinot Noir as well, uh, the hemophiliac prince of grapes. You know, it's like the biggest baby on the planet. Um, but but I think that like as I evolve as a winemaker, it's like I appreciate the grapes that are just like yes, I'll do what you want. But I'm obsessed with the ones that are like 
that require patience and attachments to them and skill and like you know the ones that don't do exactly what you tell them to like that's that's see that's cool because like that that's like that's good perspective for me because i have over the past couple of years sort of found myself with a gravitational pull like increasingly to find grapes that are just happy like where they are and like and that require less of my energy um not only like selfishly but because like in an attempt at um you know creating like a healthier symbiosis between like me and the vine and the land i think that like vines that just like are happy and require less work and require less input. Um, it just like, for me, it just, it, it makes me feel happy. <laughs> and uh, so I think it's drawn me towards like a lot of the hybrid varietals specifically. And, um, you know, like, I just, like, you just look at them in the field and it's just like, wow, that, that plant is happy and like I haven't done much to it and it just liked it here. I'm like, I kind of love that feeling. Yeah. No, I think that um I'm not saying that as much as as a farmer, because I think that as a farmer I appreciate that too. Like as a farmer, you know, obviously things that are more cold hardy, you know, resist like that aren't gonna have major mildew problems. Um, you know, thicker skins, stuff like that. I, I appreciate those qualities. Which interestingly, I think that those are the more demanding grapes in the cellar. And that's more what I'm talking about. And not that you have to, because I, I think that the a big misconception of winemaking is doing more equals more results. Like I actually think that like with these wines that I'm kind of describing as complicated, they're not complicated because I have to do more as much as they're complicated because I have to like, think about what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, they're like, they're, they're a long game. Like it's instead, of, it's not checkers, it's chess, you know, like they, the pieces take longer to figure out. It's like when you make a good Chenin Blanc, you get to feel really good about that Chenin Blanc because it's actually pretty difficult to make, especially in California. Like I think in California, it's in general, really good to make, really difficult to make very, very compelling and good white wine in most of the climates. I think it's too warm. That's me. People may hate me for saying that. Um, but you're fighting to have acid, you know, and then when you fight to have acid, then you pick something too early and you just have innocuous white wine. Um, but if you can figure out, if you can like, you know, go into your mind space, into your little cavern of, you know, ideas and, and you can figure out ways to potentially amplify the things that you want and de-amplify something else, but not by manipulation as much as by making the right move at the right time. You know, it's, it's like, like, it's kind of like a bonsai tree or something, you know, it's like maybe you cut one thing every fucking 10 years or something, but it's like, you need to cut that right, that one thing the right way. Um, like, and on that note, I actually, um, <laughs> we're going into Japanese philosophy. Um, every year I try and make wines that are like wines that I like to poo poo on, you know, like I love to make fun of skin contact Pinot Gris. So I made a skin contact Pinot Gris, um, you know, in 18 
and I let it get super botrytized as well first. And I like capped it off and let it botrytize in the bin for a week. So it was like this wine that like, if somebody told me how they made that wine, I just would have been like, shut the fuck up. Just like stop jerking off like all over your fucking self basically and just make some wine. But it but it was good to do it. It was good to have that experience. Or like I made a carbonic Malbec, you know, which isn't also a wine where if someone's like, it's a carbonic Malbec, I'd be like, you know, but I, I had fun making it and I liked it. Or I made a, I made a whole cluster. I didn't, I didn't foot shred it for, um, for, uh, oh God, I want to say, um, it was like almost a month. <laughs> I just like let let the the bin sit there, um, Zinfandel, and you know that would be something as well where I'd be like, that's an abomination of wine. Why the fuck would you do that? Um, other than to tell everyone you did it. Yeah, other than to tell everybody you did it exactly. And what I found is that I'm an asshole, <laughs> and you know sometimes you can make really cool stuff by these you know rogue experiments. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still probably not the winemaker I am. You know, I kind of like, like a, to put it in music format, it's like I love John Cage, but I love John Cage for like the, you know, every 200 John Cage pieces, there's one that's really simple and beautiful, like in a landscape where, you know, it's just him sitting in a tiny piano playing, you know, really basic notes you know, and it's this like beautiful, beautiful valley in the midst of all this chaos around it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you like making wines that are beautiful and elegant, but like really, um, you know, the it, it's it's individual elements. It's like the simplicity that draws you in. Yes. That's awesome. That's a really good. Um, that's a really good summary, Drew. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> um, You're like, cool. I, make, I like to make wines where I take these really complicated statements and I summarize all of them and put them into a three-word sentence. <laughs> so um, somebody's listening to this and like you've, you've had this like pretty like wild journey that you've shared with us. What kind of advice do you have for someone who is who wants to try their hand at wine and they've had people tell them that they can't do it or they don't have the money to to get into this or they don't have like the opportunity or the privilege or the backing like what like what kind of like words of encouragement now would you have for someone who's like I'm passionate and I want to do it where do I start Have you ever been to Hometown Barbecue in Brooklyn? No. It's amazing. He has one uh, that he just opened in Miami too. And it's owned by this guy named Billy Durley. And um, Billy, I had never met before, but he clearly grew up in the same like knuckles deep, like punk rock and hardcore scene that I grew up in where like people got beat up all the time. You know, like if Nazis showed up at the punk show, you like beat them with fucking billy clubs and hit them when the cops came, you know, like, like a real, like, like it, like a really like no bullshit, like tough, like it was a tough scene to grow up in, you know, like people got jumped. I've had people try and jump me. I've jumped other people, you know, like, 
um, it's, it was a brutal, a brutal environment to grow up like, like nineties, eighties, nineties, two thousands punk and, and hardcore scene. Um, and to meet somebody else in the food and beverage industry, who's like had that life. And there's a few of us floating around. I mean, we bump into each other periodically and usually very quickly it's identified who's who. Um, Somebody asked me this question when I was at Hometown Barbecue talking to Billy about a year ago. And I like, every time somebody asks me this question, I kind of like pause where I want to give this really helpful advice and I want to support it. And Billy and I were talking about it later and he's like, people like us just jump off the building without a parachute. And I think that's, like, I don't fucking need to give that person any advice. If they're serious and they have the, they have it in them. I'm here. If they have any questions about the function of doing it, if they have any questions about like how to try and get people to give you money, which is honestly like, you just have to figure that out eventually. Um, and it's usually because you're a hard enough worker that people believe in you. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think we all, all of us who come upon this honestly do it in our own way. Um, and, uh, and I love to support people coming up. I mean, I get random phone calls and emails from, you know, frequently young women trying to figure out wine and I'm happy to help any way I can, but I can't tell somebody else how to do it. Yeah. You got to do like, it. You really, yeah. You just need to decide that you're okay jumping off that building and fucking figuring it out before you hit the ground. And if you hit the ground, figure it out, like, or figure something else out or, you know, lick your wounds and move on because this isn't going to get easier. <laughs> you know, like, like the, the environment that we live in, we can do everything we can to change it and we can do everything we can to create opportunities and create equitability for, you know, all humans. And I'm on that side. I'm in that fight. I've been in that fight from a very young age. I've been exploited on a very core level of my being. Um, but I can't tell somebody else what's inside of them. You know, I can just support them if it's there. So, I mean, the advice would be make sure it's what you really want to do and do every fucking thing you possibly can to get there. Yeah. Give up. Just don't yeah. give up. Make it happen. Yeah. Cool. Um, so part of, uh, part of the show, I, I want to hear, um, if you have a story along your journey that was like so brutal at the time, but now when you tell it, it's hilarious. Um, my sisters and I growing up, like that was kind of like our thing, like something was like awkward or you just like, you know, totally messed something up. Um, as, as a winemaker, on your journey, have you had any moments that, you know, like that, that you just like messed the whole situation up so bad. And now when you look, think back on it, it's actually pretty hilarious what you did. Putting you on the spot now. You're, you're such a storyteller. No, I love it. no, I'm trying. I mean, I have a, I have a situation, but it's like not Like, I think, I think because in a lot of ways, like since I started making wine, 
like I haven't, I can't afford to make mistakes like in the cellar. Like I just could never afford to make a mistake. And I mean, I had a, I had it in 2016, um, my 2016 vintage, I had a couple friends interning for me in 17 and neither of them had a lot of cellar experience and they fucked up a seal on something and oxidized a couple of my wines. My way of dealing with that is I still have those wines in my warehouse and now they taste fucking awesome. And I'm probably just going to release them. And I didn't make as much white wine in the past two years to compensate for that. Like, but I wouldn't call that brutal. Um, you know, the thing that I think of that's kind of brutal is um, I had two vineyards that I made the wine from in like 13 and 14. Um, and the woman who owns or owned one vineyard and leased the other at the time, I think in her own regard, was not the most straight communicator. But another winery that is in the same guild of wineries that I'm in ended up with both of those vineyards in a very not so not so savory way, we'll say. Uh, whether it was them or her or anybody, nobody talked to me about it, you know, in the interaction. And it was the year I got pregnant with my daughter. And I think that everybody thought because I had no money and I was pregnant that I was just fucking fodder. Um, which didn't turn out to be the case. My daughter was four. Um, and at this point now, it's like, I spent years so fucking mad at them, <laughs> like spending a lot of my bandwidth being very angry with these people and whether they were right or I, or I was right and doesn't matter who was wrong at this point, I can sit down with both of them and have a fucking beer and be friends and be grown ups And, and I even, as crazy as this sounds kind of care about them. Cause I think that while they really hurt me and the situation was very deceptive and very unfortunate, they're still on my side in the grand scheme of things as people, you know, and as what they want as far as winemaking and farming and everything else are concerned. Um, and having that catharsis, of experience where it's like, I fucking hated them because they were my friends too. So it was like, when you, when somebody fucks you over, it sucks. But when your friends fuck you over, that's like, yeah, it stings. Yeah. That's like shit pie as my dad and I would say. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that was really brutal, but also, you know, what is it? The, the, you know, man is a wolf, man is a forgiving God, you know, if you will, like, you know, I think that, you know, to, you, like there, there's, there's so many other things in this world that are more important than this little fucking dispute over, you know, a vineyard in Carneros years and years ago now that mean more like the, the humanity has over overridden the brutality of that experience. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And a good ending. I've got one for you. 
Um, so my brutal story or a brutal story, we, um, we had this idea, like, I guess four years ago now that we were going to nitro infuse wine, like, and it was going to create these like fine, soft bubbles and we were going to put it in cans. And I remember I even like spent like several calls on the phone with like an IP, like international patent attorney, because I was like, this is brilliant. And like, this is going to be a thing. And like, Guinness has patents and like, I want the wine nitro patent. So like, I was like trying to patent like the process that we were nitro infusing wine. Anyway, we had a Chardonnay and uh, we were going to nitro infuse it. And uh, it like, it, it, it honestly, the wine wasn't very good. So we were like, let's just nitro infuse this one and maybe it'll take over. Still wasn't very good. So we were like, let's go out and pick some fresh blackberries uh, and raspberries from my friend's orchard. Whole team does that, bring it back. We, we throw it in the tank and we're like, we're going to call this nitro bramble. And it's going to be a blackberry nitro infused Chardonnay, right? So like we put it all in and, and we were like, this is going to be sansu free. It's not going to be filtered. So we like literally did all of this nitro infused, put it in cans. And uh, about a week later, um, my buddy Joey, who still, who still works with us, like texts me and was like, dude, you sent me away from the winery with bombs. And he was like, I'm just driving down the highway. And all of a sudden he's like, it sounds like someone threw a grenade in the back of my car and there's bramble berries everywhere. So like this happened. So we were like, all right, we've got a problem. We've like, we've sent literal like missiles to, to like liquor stores in the area. Bramble is actually the name of a firework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then the next morning I wake up to an email from this guy who owns a wine shop in Baltimore and like the caption or the, uh, like the heading, the title of the email was just like all caps WTF. And I open it up and the <laughs> picture of his desk with just juice <laughs> everywhere and like all over his laptop, all, all over his laptop. And in it, it, he wrote like dot, dot, dot. Yeah. That's a brand new MacBook and it's ruined. So what are we going to do about this? <laughs> uh, so then we recalled uh, the rest of that product, and uh, that was brutal. Like in the moment, I was we went from like I'm like calling people trying to patent this brilliant idea to the next week I'm like recalling product and praying that like we legitimately don't hurt someone. <laughs> so that's my brutal story. Hopefully, it tasted good. Yeah, it actually was uh, delicious, and we still have some of them that. Believe it or not, I, like okay, not connected. So. so I'll get you some 2012 Inconu Cab Franc, and I want some Nitro Bramble. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I'll take a can and put it in a box and send it to you, and you'll just have to let me know if it makes it. I think it's going to get picked up by TSA as like, <laughs> like <laughs> a well, when weapon. I'm out there, when I'm out there next, we'll um, right. put on safety equipment yeah exactly <laughs> keep it cold or die into the nitro into enter the nitro bramble chamber <laughs> maybe you can put like instead of a mountain you can put just a bomb on it that if it's yeah. cold enough to open you can drink it like yeah there's, you see the <laughs> there's yeah i love i thought about that too because like breweries get away with this there's a brewery down in uh in uh, richmond virginia i love called the Vale. and like on the back of their cans like whenever they do like fresh fruited cans of beer um on the back, they just, they put a little sticker that says keep cold or die and drink in a week. And it's like, I kind of like that. 
anyway, it's just like a raw, fresh product. Um, so how can people connect with you now that you're not on social media and how do people find your wine? Um, I would say to connect with me, email me, you can call me. I don't care. What's your email? You know, uh, Laura at inconuwine.com. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, and I think you can go on the Inconu website and there's a, um, there's a, uh, Google voice number, which I don't remember. Do you ship wine? I did actually like, I kind of, when the whole COVID thing happened, I wasn't feeling so good about like participating in like shipping shit all over the place. So we took everything down for a while. I mean, that, that is not at all to criticize other people. That was just like, we were moving. We had a lot of shit going on or we moved. We had a lot of shit going on. And I think that it just kind of like, it put too many widgets in there. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't have a store up on my website right now. I can ship wine if somebody bothers me enough i'll ship them some wine they pay me um i uh i'll probably put it up again at some point i have some some nicer wines i'm releasing that would make sense to do that with um honestly like a club or a subscription list or i need to do yeah so sign up for my mailing list i think it's been a two and a half years since I've sent an email, but I'm going to start doing it soon. Cause I well, think that doing a so wine- if you want to know what's up and you don't get bought and you don't want to be bothered by too many emails, sign up for Inca news. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you may hear from me. An email, it'll be good. It's kind of like your cousin or something. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, uh, I do want to do a subscription though, you know, like maybe a twice a year mail situation. Um, you know, and then with, through that, I'll keep people informed with what I'm doing up in Washington too, with, I think what we're going to call Lorelei. So what's the inspiration there? Uh, Lorelei is the like siren of the river Rhine. And this is like one of the windiest places in the world. So, I mean, you hear the wind all the fucking time. Cool. So yeah, you know, the, the Alsatian varietals and everything just makes sense. I if you come it. out here, you'll understand. You'll be like, yeah. I, I hope to. Yeah. Cool. No, you, you should. I mean, you, you guys are always welcome. Once, you know, once it's safe, um, you bring, bring the whole family. We have plenty of room. Would love that. And our kids can all hang out and be close to the same age and have fun together. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much for uh, yeah, thank you. all. I know you've got uh, a daughter inside happily eating ice cream right now. So I will, uh, I'll I'll let you go, but this has been awesome. Thanks for joining me. And uh, anyone who has listened to this, thank you. Uh, Please consider subscribing on iTunes or Spotify or whatever you do. And uh, yeah, we'll release an episode every week. Awesome. Take care, Drew. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. See you later.